first off, they define success as revenue growth. And there, there's this whole like triple, triple, double, double that they talk a lot about in like Silicon Valley. Like that's the goal. Triple revenue for year one, triple revenue year two, double year three, double year four. And it's just that that I don't think that necessarily yields success. You know, I don't, there's more to it than that. And I think there's a, in general, <clears throat> a premature obsession over top line revenue growth at the expense of customer attention and success. Project A Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to the Project A Podcast. This is Raul Perjan speaking. I'm sales and customer success specialist at Project A. I have with me today, Mark Roberger, who is uh, one of my favorite people to have on this podcast. And I've been looking forward to it for a while. I've been chasing him for about a year and uh, finally got him pinned down. Um, why am I so excited, by the way? So you've got to know that for about half a year, I've been running around with this book he wrote called Sales Acceleration Formula, which you might have read. And um, I've been calling it the Sales Bible and uh, telling all our founders to just at least read it and then talk to me about it. Um, we're not going to talk only about that today because Mark does a lot of exciting things, um, but I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that you guys know how excited I am about this. So hi, Mark. Say hi to the audience. Hey, Ra. <laughs> Thank you. I, I apologize that I have been tough to get a hold of. I guess we were going back on, on forth on LinkedIn. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for, um, you know, uh, putting the, the, the work to, to for, into practice, especially in the, in the European ecosystem. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for that. Excited to share more. Yeah. So can you tell the audience who you are and all the amazing things that you do? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I am an entrepreneur by background. Uh, I've done a couple startups. The last one uh, was a while ago, HubSpot, as part of the founding team. Uh, four of us at MIT um, kind of launched that in 06, and the company's done very well. I was the head of sales there um, and, and took that position, uh, basically took them through the IPO. Um, and then that's when I wrote the book. The sales acceleration formula was really just um, – <clears throat> I kept getting – I would always spend my commute time uh, talking to entrepreneurs because I'd get a lot of emails from people like, "How did you build the sales email HubSpot? How do you how do you hire how do you hire salespeople? How do you think about demand gen?" And it was always the same questions and the same answers. And entrepreneurs would tell me later like the answers were really helpful <laughs> to their companies. Um, so I really just kind of wrote that into the book. Um, it was almost like I guess an autobiography of how I built the HubSpot sales team. Um, and then that led to a Harvard Business School recruiting me uh, to after after HubSpot, like kind of toward the tail end of the HubSpot, it was actually good timing uh, to go teach uh, the first sales courses at the MBA level. Uh, and that's been a blast. I've done that for six years now and um, also have spent a lot of time staying very active in the ecosystem. Um, so I would I would basically uh, parachute into a different startup every quarter. And, and sort of spend one day a week and, and all those experiences helped me to formulate some new work uh, that we're going to talk about today, the science of scaling that helps young entrepreneurs figure out uh, when is the right time to scale and how fast. Um, but it's also uh, all that work has also filtered into um, my next big project, which has been Stage 2 Capital, a new venture capital firm. We raised our first fund two years ago, our second fund we're halfway through raising right now. 
it's the first VC firm run and backed by sales leaders. Um, so we have most of the most of the sales and marketing executives uh, from from most of the the software unicorns uh, in the U.S. and beyond as our our backers. Um, and so you know, it, it very it's a it's a great I guess instrument to use to practice the 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 science of scaling model that we're going to talk about a little bit today. Yeah. A busy guy, as we talked about. And um, so just maybe you understood now why I might be so excited because uh, sales is a field where I would say it's not very academic. Um, I think I studied at business school where I was actually surprised that nobody ever even talked about sales and it's supposed to be a good business school. So, um, <laughs> but given how important sales is, not just in startups, but nowadays anyways in the competitive marketplace, um, I think it's needed. It's needed that somebody goes out there and and tries to apply some scientific approach. And that's what you did with the sales acceleration formula. There were others before you. Uh, Neil Rackham's been selling, which is also one of my all-time favorites. He also uh, looked at it through some academic glasses. But I think this is very much needed. This is something that I like to, to do as well. I like to, to work out something that goes beyond just hearsay and just some ratios that you copied off the internet. And um, that's why I enjoy your work, because uh, you like to go out there with, I would say, a bottom-up approach and, and highlight things that maybe others wouldn't even think about and just go by hearsay. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, as we as we said, uh, it's about the science of scaling. Um, basically, how, how would you scale? When should you scale? Uh, what different phases are there? Um, we A lot of this is also something that we are working on, and we are also at Project A uh, meeting some different challenges for that. And we're going to talk about that for a moment. Um, but let's just let's just jump straight into it. So, just in general terms, for a startup, you talk, let's say, Series A, maybe Seed, uh, or a little bit more mature towards Series B. How should growth look, and how do you think about uh, something like the term "growing healthy"? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is um, this question is is causing a much higher failure rate in startups than is necessary. Um, which is why I've been kind of putting a lot of work into it. Um, but I, I would say, honestly, pretty much every startup I meet, and I don't know if you see the same thing in Europe, bro. I don't, I spend some time with the European startups, but more North America. Um, they raise, um, you know, they, <clears throat> first off, they define um, success as revenue growth. And there, there's this whole like triple, triple, double, double that they talk a lot about in like Silicon Valley. Like that's the goal. Triple revenue for year yeah. one, triple revenue year two, double year three, double year four. And it's just that that I don't think that necessarily yields success. You know, I don't there, there's more to it than that. And I think there's a in general <clears throat> a premature obsession over top line revenue growth at the expense of customer attention and success. And so yeah. we look, um, you know, very hard there in terms of like, when are you ready to scale? And then the other thing is the pacing. Like I see so many um, organizations, even if they are ready to scale, um, they'll raise a big round, like a series A or a series B. They'll have like three salespeople on at the company and they'll go hire 10 reps in one month. Like that, it's, every single plan I see is is yeah. centered around that, 
and it's without you know i think raw you're smiling like it's <laughs> you, you understand what it takes from an organizational capability to hire 10 reps in a month I mean, from an interviewing standpoint from an onboarding standpoint from a demand gen standpoint from a managerial standpoint you're just not ready for that and so just thinking more about the pacing yep. so those those are some of the things that we'll talk about within the framework yeah i mean so we have at project a a little bit of a unique capability in that when we do due diligence for a new investment we also go by, I would say, the topic of expertise that we have. So okay. we take our CTO and the CTO is going to do a small due diligence on your on your technical uh, department. And we also do the same nice. in sales. And so one of the things that happens very often is that I come out of those due diligences and I just I wouldn't say I shake my head, but I'm a little bit disappointed at the naivety that people have when, when they talk about scaling sales. Um, they're just... They're just doing exactly what you're talking about. It's maybe, let's say it's a head of sales. It's a commercially driven CEO and maybe some interns. So it's four people and they, they steer the whole ship. They've been doing that for a year or two. And now they go out there and they say, give me some money and I'm going to grow to 40, 50 people. Well, how are you going to do that? What do you need for that? You need a ton of things to grow to 40, 50 people. And you also need to prove a couple of things before you even want to do that at all. And, um, what I like about what we're going to talk about now, and let's jump straight into that as well, is um, there's some phases to it, and you've articulated those. So can you talk about the different phases that you would go through, let's say, from seed or series A to actually calling it a scalable sales organization? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so there's there's three phases to a product market fit, go-to-market fit, and then growth and moat. And those are those are... You know, the framework set up so it's easy for an entrepreneur to identify where they are and what the graduation path and milestones are. These are sequential phases and um, they actually dictate really tactical questions like who's your optimal hire? What's your compensation plan? How do you think about pricing and demand generation that can evolve as you move through those phases? Yeah. And could you all maybe give a quick characterization of what these phases are? Because sure. so we also think about the same problems. And in our or my framework, we also have the product market fit. I would say that's a given. That's what everybody thinks about. And then we also have a go-to market fit. But you've also added this mode and growth phase, which yeah. uh, at least we're not thinking about uh, particularly yeah. much. Um, we probably just have it all lumped together. So how would you discern those yeah, two sure. phases? So, so product market fit, you know, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, product market fit. But I think it's interesting because when you ask 10 entrepreneurs, when, you, when, when are you ready to scale? Pretty much all 10 say product market fit, when you have product market fit. And that's awesome. Like great work by Eric Reese and Lean Startup and totally revolutionized the way we think about that zero to one phase of a startup. But then if you ask them, well, what is product market fit? <laughs> you get 10 different yeah. answers, right? And, and a lot of the answers are focused on revenue. Oh, it's when you hit a million in revenue, product market fit. I think that's terrible. Yeah, I don't think I that's product. I mean, that's that's like message market fit. Big deal. You know how to sell someone on something. It doesn't mean your product works. It doesn't mean you're generating success. So, so with the product market fit, <clears throat> the way I I encourage a much more granular, rigorous definition of it, that's based on you know retention. I, I think if I were to kind of rest my hat on, on any metric to represent product market fit, it would be uh, customer retention. Now, the problem with that is <clears throat> retention is such a lagging indicator, mm. right? It can take 
if we sign up a bunch of customers this summer, it could take a full year before we even understand what our attention is <clears throat> on those folks. So what I encourage is the definition of a leading indicator to customer attention, right? That's, that's what I encourage uh, all startups to come up with. And initially it's a hypothesis, you know, it's, it's very difficult to statistically prove it. Over time, you will be able to statistically prove that it actually is a leading indicator. But in the beginning, it's a hypothesis. And I encourage a particular framework for the definition of that. And it's uh, P percent of customers do E event in T time. Okay, so P percent of customers do E event in T time. Okay, so there's mm -hmm. three, three variables in there. And so let's like let's bring that to life with a couple examples. So Slack, eighty percent of customers send two thousand team messages in thirty days. If that mm -hmm. happens, you have product market fit. If Slack goes out and acquires whatever, you know, back in the early days, they acquire twenty customers in July. If eighty percent of those send two thousand team messages in the first thirty days, then I would say they have product market fit. Okay, mm -hmm. for Dropbox, 85% of customers back up their files on one device within one hour. Okay, if that mm -hmm. happens, HubSpot, and I know this was the case because this is how we defined it. It took, a, it took a number of years for us to even think this way because this was in the beginning of cloud and SaaS and stuff. But for us, it was uh, if 75% of customers um, use five or more features in the platform, so there were like 25 features, if they use five or more within the first 60 days. If that happened, we had product market fit. And we had to measure that in customer cohorts. So every, we had monthly customer cohorts, and this is how I encourage every company to measure, is just organize your, your um, customers by the month in which they required and measure it week over week or month over month on what percent are actually hitting this leading indicator, right? And once you get that, I don't, I don't know what the right number is in terms of the P percent, like, 60%, 70%, 80%, somewhere in that vicinity. I don't think it's really that important because it will hopefully go up over time, uh, even when you stop focusing on it. Um, but, um, you know, when when you hit that, that's when you have product market fit. Does that make sense, Ra? Uh Yeah, what I like about that is you take quite a high number because what also happens with early stage companies very often is they rely which is not a bad thing in itself, but they rely heavily on friends and family in the beginning. Uh, yeah. So they're, let's say you're a very connected entrepreneur, you've done this a couple of times, you've been around the block, you know people, um, you probably have quite an easy time selling your software as a service, whatever thing to a couple of people in the beginning. And then you'll go out and say, well, people are buying it, people are using it, uh, that's good, but you need a higher number to go beyond that to see if people are actually using it who are not your uh, roommate from, from university. And I would say that that I like that approach more than probably that I would say just the customer acquisition driven focus. Um, and yeah, also maybe it's a good point. Like raw, right? Like five you, five, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, I have five customers and they're happy. Yeah. They're also your best friends. And I mean, I just don't, I don't think you have product market fit yet. So sorry, I cut you off raw. What else? Yeah. I mean, you, we even have people walking in who are very connected, who have a hundred friends. But if we know that, I mean, that's good. It, it, it tells me something about you being well-connected, so good on you. But it doesn't tell me that your product is going to be, go beyond your connections. And it's unlikely you're going to know the whole German market or the whole European market so uh, or the whole world market. So that's, that's why I try to focus on that a lot. And I also try to uncover who are we actually talking about. And so you taking a high number, such as uh, 2,000 customers, 
or 5,000 customers, whatever, I think that's a much better approach than just looking at who's in there right now and who's using it. Yeah, and I'm not saying, I, I think the example is 2,000 team messages sent, right? So I think like, it's, I don't think we can wait till we have 2,000 customers to have to claim product market no. or not, right? And I, it does it does depend like, you know, a company like say Slack or Dropbox that is a little more transactional, you know, I would expect them to be acquiring like a dozen or two customers a month at least. And then we we would be able to evaluate that. But also we, you know, I work with another a number of companies that sell million dollar software. You you're not gonna go if you're if you're if you're selling a dozen a month, you're doing pretty pretty good. Um so in that case, what you have to do is you um I would create a a health scorecard uh for each customer that we look at. Mm -hmm. And and I could claim product market fit in, after having only like five or ten customers. In that case, if they're big customers, if we look deeply at the health scorecard, it's a little trickier with the big companies and it can take a little bit longer to, you know, you could be talking about three or four months before you can actually see the early indicator retention. Um, yeah. But that's that's what's necessary for some of those complicated ones. Mm -hmm. So to sum that up, uh, you would be looking for product market fits to actually have a definition of what that is. And not just go by by gut feeling, which I agree with, uh, although it's difficult. And the lagging indicator of just customer retention is uh, probably misleading, or at least it can take a while, and and you won't have the action potential that you have that you would have by looking at a, an active or a leading indicator. Um, exactly. Just one more question: Why? Because that's what everybody else focuses on. Why customer retention, and why not customer acquisition? Well, customer acquisition will come in on the go-to-market side, right? It's like you've got to you got to start with the end. If you know, if if you've if you've proven that you can acquire customers, like big deal. That just means you're good at selling. You're good at marketing, and you product market fit. I mean, that's that your product delivers the value you promised. That has nothing to do with sales, mm -hmm. right? So, so let's come straight into the uh, uh, go-to-market fit. What is yeah, that to you? So so. Now that you've got product market fit, which basically means you you know how to acquire customers and make them successful, right? It doesn't mean you know how to do it profitably, okay? So yeah. when you're in the product market fits phase, the implicate, you know, you really want to do, it. it is hard to come up with an idea, a product idea, and to get like 80% of your customers that you acquire to see that value. That is hard. And so... The, in the product market fit phase, that's where you do like Paul Graham's like do unscalable things, right? Like, you know, just like you said, like I don't, you shouldn't build a demand gen cold calling function in the product market fit phase. You should have enough connections between maybe your investors and your company, et cetera, your small team to get introduced to handfuls of customers. And so don't worry about scalable demand gen. Don't worry about your pricing model. Don't worry about your rep comp plan. Like if we're talking about those things during product market fit stage, don't worry about a sales playbook. Just like you, the founder, should be out there pitching and onboarding people. I remember I talked to David Cancel, who runs Drift, and he was our product, uh, chief product officer at HubSpot. And um, he was flying in the early days of Drift to go see and onboard customers that were paying him $50 a month as the founder. I mean, that's beautiful. Do unscalable things. And he was able to get, do anything it takes to get 80% of those customers um, to see the value. That you haven't, now, if you've achieved that, kudos to you. You've built a wonderful foundation for a business. Now we just have to prove that you can do it profitably and scalably. 
that's yeah. go to market fit, right? And so um, what the, usually what, how we measure that is unit economics, right? So we talk about payback periods of 12 months or less. We talk about LTV to CAC ratios of three or more, right? That's great. That's a wonderful end target. But again, we need leading indicators because if I acquire a bunch of customers this month or this, this summer, it takes me a long time before I truly understand the unit economics behind that behavior, right? And so I would need leading indicators, which algebraically is not that difficult to produce. It's like, I can't say if you're my salesperson, Raul, I can't be like, hey, Raul, go, go be a salesperson and uh, produce a payback period of 12 months or less. Yeah. <laughs> like, how, as you know, as a young salesperson, what do you do? But, but all that means is like the, the, the math behind that is how many appointments are you booking every week? Um, how many of those turn into demos? How many of those close? What's the average sale? It's really just like how many appointments, um, what's the close rate and the average sale? That's really what the main economics come back to. Of course, like how much I'm paying you comes into play and that kind of stuff. But um, that's really, so I just need to take that end goal and and extrapolate it back into, you know, these leading activities, which that's con- like every almost every sales dashboard has it. It's just like, let's be a little bit more um, purposeful in what that format looks like that spits out the, the economics. And now I, I, so that's basically it is like, I achieve my leading indicators to unit economics is when I have go to market fit. It's about doing this, producing that customer value consistently and, and uh, sorry, scalably and profitably, right? This is where the pricing model, the comp plan um, the playbook, the demand gen channel, this all matters. And we want to have those things in place before we add the 10 reps, right? If we, if we add the 10 reps before we do that, 99% of the time we're going to fail. So there's, there's some tension uh, with that topic because also what I see many times with, let's say, very early stage Series A or just coming out of seed, um, you have, a, again, a very commercially driven founder you have maybe a head of sales and they will do a lot of the legwork themselves doing things that don't scale. So good on them, but they will have trouble extrapolating their activities and their efficiency to a sales team at scale. Yes. Obviously it's i uh, I'm, I'm a good salesperson or a bad salesperson, but that uh, let's hope I'm a good one. If I'm a good founder and I get good numbers. So I close, I don't know how much 50% uh, at some at some stage. But that doesn't mean that we will do the same thing with 20 or 10 or 30 people. Right. So how do you deal with that insecurity where you don't know how that's going to translate into a scaling organization? Well, you got to you got to practice it. I don't think you can get go to market fit without having a couple of reps. You know, I yeah. think you can you can get through product market fit um, with just you, the founder and a salesperson, whatever. That's fine. You're just you're just trying to show like your organizational um alignment with the customer and whether the product creates value but you can't do go to market fit without some reps so usually usually you have like three or four salespeople at this point and you're you're running a playbook and you're codifying it so essentially you've proven that you can go out and hire someone and and onboard them uh to this level of proficiency and then and then once you get into growth and moat you're among a couple other things you're going to keep doing that every month yeah and that's what I really like. That to me is where it, I wouldn't call it science yet, but it's a point where you are focusing on making it um, something that we can replicate. You can 
You can look at three or four salespeople with one playbook and say, okay, if we keep doing this playbook and just take random but qualified and good enough salespeople off the street, we can replicate this to 10, 20, 30 people. Yeah, I think and, and there's five yeah, there's five components to the playbook, depending on how deep you want to get into that I like is number one, there's a buyer journey that describes mm -hmm. how the buyer thinks when they're purchasing as they go through the awareness, consideration, and decision phase. And then there's that that's just something that creates a, a common language for us as we scale. And then there's four pieces of the sales playbook that sit on the buying journey. There's the prospecting guide. How do we get appointments? There's the discovery guide. How do we do discovery and qualify? There's the presentation guide. How do we pitch the product? And then there's the customer success guide. This is like once we sell them, how do we onboard and and renew and 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 uh, uh, expand those accounts? Um, yeah. So so that's like we have to codify that before we go into the growth and moat. That's an important step to your point that. You know, you'll be able, you're ready to, to bring on more reps. So what is growth mode then? Because this is the part where probably conceptually in my mind, I have it just mushed together with the go to market fit, mm -hmm. but you, to you, it's something distinctly different. So yeah, because product market fit, we've proven that we can onboard customers successfully mm -hmm. and make them successful. Go to market fit means we've, we've proven that we can do that scalably and profitably. And so growth and mo is really about how fast we should scale. We're now ready to scale. You have product marketing and go to market fit. So in another way, you have the lead indicators to retention and the lead indicators to unit economics all look good. Green light. Okay. So fine. How fast do we scale? And like I said in the beginning, most companies I see just add like 10 reps in a month and they're not ready for that. So first off, we got to think about a pace. I like to do like say one rep a month for like four or five months. And then what I've done now is I've instrumented the lead indicator to retention and the lead indicator to unit economics. Those are dashboards. And as I'm adding one rep a month for four or five months, I'm what, that's my speedometer. If that thing stays green, then I can go to two reps a month for four or five months. And if it stays green, I can go to four reps a month for four or five months. And if it stays green, I can go to eight reps a month. Now we're cooking. But you've proven that like, You've set up a, a, a well-disciplined recruiting engine, salesperson onboarding engine, demand gen engine that's scaling, a managerial lay layer to make sure that the speedometer stays green as you're adding more and more reps. But if it goes red, you know very early because these are all leading indicators. You're not waiting for the quarterly P&L to know if you're going too fast. And you can intervene and fix it and try to turn it green so you can get back onto the pace. Right? So that's all it is. Is like, Go ahead. What what would a red indicator look like? A red speedometer? Yeah, I mean, it's always going to happen. I mean, as you go from like you got four salespeople and they're there, and then all of a sudden you start adding one rep a month, you you could add some bad hires. So all of a sudden, like they're not booking the right number of appointments, or your demand gen is not scaling with the team, and so you you'd see that they're not booking the, enough sales opportunities to hit their number. That's a red engine. Don't don't speed it up, like because your your demand yeah. gen is not keeping up or like maybe you just like are hiring bad reps and the demand is there, but the close rate's gone down because none of these reps are onboarding. Like don't speed it up. Like you got to fix that. You probably have to fire some of them and, and rethink your recruiting. Um, you know, like you could be on the, uh, on the customer success side. It could be like, you're doing fine. You're adding the reps, but you're not scaling the customer success team uh, or the support team. And suddenly like wait times are off the hook, the churn rates going, you know, the lead indicators to retention are, are off the, are, are looking bad because you don't have a proper onboarding team 
that's scaling with yeah. the sales team. So that's t- that's tough to do to like <clears throat> run all that together and and you just want to know as early as possible when it's when the when it's starting to shake. So one thing that I've observed a lot in Berlin, I would say specifically about four to five years ago, because you have to know some things about Berlin. It's uh, it's a very particularly driven uh, startup environment where some small some some I would say a small group of people had a lot of leverage over how Berlin has evolved. I would say the rocket internets, uh, the bigger companies that are, that are now very big in Germany um, and, and all across uh, Europe, they've evolved uh, into some sort of thinking that also then the earlier startups then, then took on. And one of those, I would say, dogmas that they had a lot was the growing pains in sales and just taking that into account and just accepting a lot of them, which I've always disagreed with. So I've been in companies myself and I've seen companies where they're just doing the hire and fire. They're, they're doing the growth and mode phase. They're in that phase, but they're growing too fast. So they're hiring 20 people and firing 12 every month. I've been in that company where I've onboarded personally 20 people and I had to let go of them 12 or 14 within three months. And I don't think that's acceptable. And I also, I, I agree with you on the part that you should monitor that much closer and, and, and just don't accept that much failure. But I would say that historically driven, especially about five, five or six years ago, we would accept a lot more here. And, and I'm also an advocate for going uh, a bit healthier, maybe a bit slower, but I would rather see you hire eight people and keep seven of those than, uh, than hire 20. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, I'm not saying slower growth, I'm saying healthier. Like I think we, yeah. you know, believe it or not, 20, 30 years ago, we did hire salespeople before we even built the product. And we just sold yeah. vaporware. And Eric Reese came up with Lean Startup and built, built you know, products with, the customer and it changed everything and you know yeah you scaled your revenue slower but everyone accepted it and it's just like it's just we don't we don't have a clear enough definition on product market fit and pacing so i'm not i'm not saying don't hire 10 salespeople in a month go go fast go triple triple double double just make sure that you have the the proper instrumentation and foundational elements in place to do that you know we got to scale fast that's the whole part of like the venture capital scene like these are these are going after new markets and trying to create unicorns. You have to do it. You just have to be ready and do it with a little more science than just like my VC told me to hire ten reps this month. Yeah. Like, just like, you, you kidding me? Like, you're gonna kill a good idea. Um, or I saw so. more on the internet that that's how many you should be yeah. at this point at this stage. Right. Which is this? This is something. So many times founders come up to us and they they ask us, "Hey, look, you're." You're seeing 50 portfolio companies. You talk to all the founders. Uh, how many sales reps should I have at, at one year of existence? How many yeah. how many sales reps should I have at two years? What conversion rate should they have? And my answer is always none. Like I'm not going to give you an answer for that. Yeah, I'm not going to answer that discussion. I refuse to do that because <laughs> nothing comes out of it. Like if we don't if we don't look at the underlying factors and if we, if we don't look at where you're actually at, that's not going to help anybody. And you're just yeah, going to run after some indicators that maybe Salesforce had when they were 30 years ago. <laughs> Uh, uh, thinking about what do we do in this market or HubSpot had, right? That's not going to help yeah. you. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you just go out and do it as a founder. Go out and do it as the head of sales. Go out and do it with two or three reps and see what spits out. See how many appointments they set up. See what the close rate is. And then, you know, it it could, like, we certainly can compare it to some benchmarks to see if we're, like, close. But, like, that's a good indicator. That's the best indication of what your model looks like. And then just like, if that spits out good unit economics, then just go and scale. And if it doesn't, then figure out like 
uh, which one you can move the needle on. Maybe maybe yeah. you can book twice as many more appointments if you hire like a, you know, a, an advisor to help you with that, or you change your demand gen sequence, right? But that to your point, you know, Raul, that has to be the starting point is your own business's numbers, not some other benchmark. Yeah, you have to get your hands dirty, otherwise you just don't know what any of those numbers mean. And um, so one thing that I'm thinking about a lot, and we're not going to have time to go through all elements, but one thing I think is very important, we touched on this, is sales hiring and sales yeah. compensation. So yeah. how do those change over the phases? How should you look at them? Yeah. Who should you hire in the beginning and who should you be looking for later on? Yeah, because they do change, right? So like picture being in the product market fit stage, right? You got probably like five to 10 engineers. You're, you're talking to customers. You're going to add a salesperson. You don't have to. Or you can do the founder sound. But if you add a salesperson, it's pretty powerful because now you're going to probably like 10x the number of conversations you have every week with customers, which is going to help you get to product market fit faster. Now, you definitely do not want the like coin operated salesperson, you know, who's like, that's great later on growth and mode. It's like give them the playbook, give them the comp plan and have them go tear it up and just acquire customers. That person is going to come in and be like, it's not working. They're going to go out and like pitch your product and be like, yeah, it's not working. You know, yeah. you, you need someone like somewhere between a product manager and account executive, right? Someone that has the account executive skills to talk to, to customers, to handle objections, to do good discovery, to comfort talking about money, closing deals, running a sales process. But you need them to have the product management skills of like having, you know, 20 customer conversations in a week and seeing the patterns and then communicating those patterns to the, the engineering team. Right. Like that's so that that's a very different half PM, half AE in the first mm -hmm. one in go to market fit. You need process builders, right? Like you, you need people who are comfortable, like with rapid change, because you're going to have like a theory on what the discovery call and the presentation guide looks like. But it's not right. And you need to go out there and practice it. And then every evening, listen to film reviews and be like, OK, what did this customer say? And do we have our sales process correct? And they need to change, 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 build the process, iterate, iterate, iterate. That's a that's a very different type of person. Usually at that point, I've got like three or four salespeople. Go ahead, Raw. Do you need the salespeople to be process builders or just the leaders? Um, yeah, the leaders. I mean, the salespeople, it's a bonus if they think that way. Um, but they definitely need to be like okay with a rapid change. Mm -hmm. Like they can't like because this the, the playbook's gonna change like every other day. Like you're awesome. you constantly be iterating it. And so they need to be curious like that. Like they, they want to be there from the start. Right. And then once you get to the growth and mode, now you got your coin operated wrap, like the sales learning curve, like coined, you know, 15 years ago that work. So it's like, that's the person who's like, Hey, here's the playbook. Here's the comp plan. Here's our target customer go, you know, and, and that's how you're going to scale. Now the comp plan, the comp plan in the beginning, I don't think you even really need to have a variable compensation on the first wrap. Like they they tend to be like more like an engineer, like have, give them some equity and just like they're, they're just really curious. If anything, I'm going to comp them on customer success, right? Like yeah. our, our lead indicator of retention, I'll just be like, here's your goal. Like get three people to hit the early indicator retention, not on the sale, right? In fact, I want to, I probably give those customers like 50% or more discounts just for jumping in early on us. I don't care. Because I don't, I'm not trying to test the price per se. I'm just trying to get at bats, right? And so, and then as I move into growth, growth and moat, I don't think enough compensation plans have in, in a customer attention indicator in it. 
Um, I find that most churn problems are the fault of sales, not product or onboarding. And that you, it's, it's kind of what the salesperson says and the expectations they set, and they need to have a compensation plan aligned with it. So I like, as an example, I like to have half of the commission paid on the contract signature where most people are paid and half of it paid on the early indicator of retention, right? So yeah. with the Slack example, you get half your money when they sign and half the money when they sent the 2000 team messages, right? And it's not like I'm trying to turn my rep into a customer success manager. I just want them to set good expectations on what success is. Yeah. So we went, I would say, deep into or deeper into uh, one topic, and there's there's a bunch of them that that you have to to think about and and also approach differently over time. Um, you could also even think about leadership during different times, uh, right? Um, you could call it the the war leaders and the peace leaders, as as they've been called. But um, I I think maybe to sum this up, uh, the the approach of really going for leading indicators first in the product market fit, then in a go to market fit. And then in a growth and mode, I think that's that's the approach that is going to change a lot of what people might do. So I think that's the main takeaway um, is try to make it where you can look at things in advance and, and, and see what's going to happen. And then that's how you should think about scaling, right? Product market fit. Um, that's where you're trying to find out is does this make any sense? Does anybody want this and are they going to use it? Growth uh, go to market fit is uh, can we do this scalably? And growth in mode is how fast should we do it? And, and I like your analogy of a speedometer. Um, unfortunately, there's so much more we could talk about. And I said, I've, I've read Thoriel's stuff. I have a million more questions, but we got to end it here. Who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll get another chance to talk. Um, just quickly, Mark, if uh, people want to find you, reach out to you or get in touch with you, how would they do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So you can go there and message me there. And then we've got <laughs> the, we put a lot of stuff people. on yeah, I put a lot of stuff on the Stage 2 Capital blog as well. <clears throat> All right. Or go to Harvard and attend his classes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In any case, Mark, thank you very much again. That was fantastic. I think there was a lot in there, uh, more than usually you would cover in half an hour. So thanks for that. And I'm already looking forward to talking more. All right. Thanks, Raw. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did... How about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating?